I am Neil Edwards, and this is The Leadership Range, where we elevate the voices of black and brown coaches, leaders and allies, and have soulful conversations about all things at the intersections of leadership, relationships and teams, well-being and inclusion. Here I offer deep insights and practical tips for work and life. Today, you are going to hear about Jedi Leadership from Omar Harris, author of The Servant Leader's Manifesto. Jedi Leadership is a new opportunity for black and brown leaders in the diversity space. The message here is compelling. It is a call to action for corporate decision makers and black professionals interested in a next level leadership opportunity. Omar, welcome to the show. Appreciate you being here on the Leadership Range. I can't wait for this conversation. Your reputation and your name precedes you. A couple of people have mentioned you to me. We haven't had a lot of time to talk and to get to know each other, um, but we've been floating around in the emotional field around each other. So um, I, I'm delighted to, to be here with you. And this is our first real conversation with the exception of you know, the 10 or 15 minutes that, that we spoke before this recording. So I'm delighted that the listeners are going to get a chance to hear what you have to say today. Um, so welcome. Thank you, Neil. Very happy to be here with you, man, and look forward to having uh, continuing our wonderful conversation. Yes, indeed. So um, I know you're an author, you're a speaker, you know, you're a coach, you're a leader, uh, you're a thinker. But why don't you go ahead and tell folks a little bit about who you are professionally? What is your work in the world and, and who are you? Well, thank you very much for that opportunity. Um, so Omar L. Harris, originally from Pittsburgh, had the opportunity to attend uh, HBCU Florida A&M for my university days in the school and business industry, which set me up for a 20 plus year corporate career, mostly in the pharmaceutical industry, working for a lot of the big names, Pfizer's in the news right now, uh, but also Merck, GlaxoSmithKline, Allergan, and Sharing Plow, which is a company that was purchased by Merck uh, in 2009. Um, and in addition to that, um, have had periods of entrepreneurship. So, you know, opening my own technology startup in the 2010s, starting my own publishing company, the, the Pantheon Collective, back in 2009 with two other uh, authors, and, and, uh, continuing my matriculation globally. So I've had the opportunity to work on four continents, worked in the Middle East, worked in Southeast Asia, and worked in Latin America. So I spent eight years from 2012 to 2020 abroad. Just came back to the US right before lockdown in the US last March and um, started my, my new entrepreneurial journey uh, last July with Intent Consulting, which is kind of an umbrella for everything that I'm passionate about and my, my life purpose, which is around helping people manifest their intentions. So not speaking it to power, knowledge to power, but also putting in the work to actually make your intentions manifest. So uh, on a corporate level, one tank consulting helps companies align those beautiful purpose statements with what actually happens on the ground, which there's a huge, it's like the telephone game, you know, between the purpose statement and what actually people end up doing is, is a whole uh, lot of nonsense. And so we help kind of clear that up um, also, Intent Books is, is the imprint where I'm put, publishing a lot of my, my recent um, thoughts into the, into the universe. Um, intent uh, Productions, Intent Film, my sister and I are working on a, on a pilot for my, no, my first novel, One Blood, which uh, we're trying to take that to, uh, to a Netflix uh, screen near you uh, very mm -hmm. soon. And uh, then you have you know, training, you have consulting, you have coaching, speaking. So all under the same umbrella of intent. So uh, very happy to be here with you and, and to, to share and to discuss, uh, you know, the things we have in common and the things we're equally passionate about. Yeah. A true uh, modern day Renaissance man. And uh, I have a number of family members that, that went to FAMU. Oh, yeah. Uh, down in the Bahamas. So a lot of, a lot of proud folks down there. So, yeah, yeah. you know, through that, um, you know, Corporate purpose, yeah. Sometimes, oftentimes, most times, there's a difference between the external message and the internal reality. So I yeah. love that you're in that space doing that work. And uh, I mean, there's so much there. Uh, we could we could talk about all of those things. We're not going to talk about all of them today. Thank you yeah. for that introduction. What I what I noticed, and I, I 
I, I got some information on you. You didn't mention this, but I, I want people to know it, right? Because because I, I think it's so cool because I don't have this. <laughs> I don't have most of what you have um, in my back pocket. But you speak multiple languages. Yes, yes. How so many? It, yeah, I speak five languages. So in my journeys, I picked up languages. So, you know, Spanish was from school. Portuguese is from living over five and a half years of my life in Brazil. Turkish is from living in Turkey for two and a half years and Indonesian for three and a half years of, of living in that uh, wonderful country. So, so those are my, my five languages uh, at the current state, but you know, we'll see what we can add on later on. At the current state. I love that. Um, that's, that's phenomenal. So major uh, intercultural competence, entrepreneur, you know, um, farmer, uh, leader, uh, multiple times over. Sounds like you're going to be uh, some sort of a, a film producer or, or something. <laughs> yeah, hopefully, you know, film showrunner, producer, you know, um, we're like, I, I just want to, you know, I think now's the time to strike while the iron is hot. I think this is a moment for us. And, uh, and my sister and I got, she's an actress uh, who's been on HBO and been doing some other things. And she's pretty fancy in her own right. But we had the time together during the, the, the COVID lockdown to just kind of sit down and, and map out a plan around some of the work we wanted to put into the world. We happened to put together this, this uh, pilot screenplay. We already won like a major Hollywood contest for our pilot screenplay. And so we're, we're off to the races. We're talking to some very fancy people right now. So we'll see how that goes. But once again, it's, you know, it's, that's only one, that's only one thing. I think that a lot of us out there understand that we, we, we need to manifest our purpose in as many ways as possible. Definitely manifestation. So, Let's start with some story. Yes, this sir. is how I like you to, you know, I want my guests here on the leadership range to know how you became you. Yeah. So, you know, I want to invite you to share, you know, at wh whatever point, you know, you want to start, whether it's right. college years or high school or elementary school or whatever, tell the story of, of Omar and, and your leadership. What are some things over the span of your life, some inflection points that have really helped elevate and extend and expand your leadership range to bring you to the man that you are today. Well, thanks a lot for that opportunity. I mean, growing up, we lived all over the, we lived in Pennsylvania, we lived in West Virginia, we lived in Louisiana. Uh, we moved around a lot within the same cities in, in Charleston, West Virginia. So I, I learned to code switch pretty early and mostly was going to primarily all white schools. Most, I mean, almost all of my you know, elementary, junior high, high school was, was all white schools. And so, you know, learning how to navigate that space was important. Uh, while living in a primarily black neighborhood um, in my Louisiana days, and then, uh, and then moving on to go into an all black school, it was kind of funny at FAMU because everybody who was, who was uh, at FAMU and SBI where we were all, all the only black kid at our all white schools. <laughs> and he put us all together. <laughs> All black school, it's kind of everybody's trying to figure out their identity together at the same time. So it's kind of like a, it's a very interesting, uh, interesting uh, experience. But yeah. you know, Florida A and M was and is a, a constant source of inspiration for me. It was a platform that gave me all the opportunities that I have had in my career. I went to Brazil as an intern, as twenty, as a twenty-three year old intern with Pfizer. Um, when I was at Florida a &M for 18 months um, uh, and Florida A&M set me up, I had a, I graduated with my MBA at 25 and started my corporate career at 25 um, and, and, and really coming in with, I think the first inflection point was I came into my corporate career uh, in a privileged space because I, I was, I was hired into this management associates program uh, at sharing plow, which was this uh, one of these, management development programs where you're supposed to come in, do three rotations, and then immediately ascend to people management roles and, and accelerate. It's a really an accelerated um, uh, leadership program. Mm -hmm. And so I came in kind of on this rocket ship and, um, you know, we ended up getting promoted, you know, five times in four years, became the company's youngest marketing director ever and the youngest senior marketing director ever uh, in that organization, leading multi-billion dollar brands. Then the company got bought by mm -hmm. uh, by another company, um, and then I had to kind of figure out who I was without the corporate identity. I was 33 years old, 
and I put everything I had into this corporate career and then it was all of a sudden it was gone. Um, and so then I began to expand into some of my entrepreneurial pursuits, also looking at, you know, publishing and because I had been working on a novel, the novel that is the TV series we based off. I had been working on that since I was 23 years old. I didn't publish it until I was 35. It took me 12 years to get that mm -hmm. thing out into the world. But I published it in 2011. The response was was tremendous and gave me a, a really big confidence boost. But I ended up going back into corporate in, in 2012. But I, I that's when I moved to Turkey. Mm -hmm. And thus began the next phase of my, my corporate career, which was, okay, now I'm a much more senior leader, but now I'm in this very foreign environment. I'm living in Istanbul. Um, I'm managing and working with people from 20 plus different countries. On any given day, you're talking to Egypt and Pakistan or Saudi and Russia or, you know, Nigeria and South Africa. So it, it was, and, and also the travel. Like, so basically I, to get the travel around the world and to meet, see people and, it was phenomenal from just opening my eyes and 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 really um, absorbing all this culture and this experience in life. I talk about like living in Turkey. This is one of the oldest countries in the world, Constantinople, the seat of the Holy Roman Empire. Um, you know, a place that's thousands of years old. Mm -hmm. And comparing our relatively, you know, adolescent American experience, right? So I think that that was really, really uh, interesting to kind of see the world from the from the European or a you know Turkish point of view. Like we're these young kids running the world, basically. Mm -hmm. And then I had the opportunity to 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 get into my first general management position, going to uh, Indonesia, leading an organization of 900 people. Indonesia is a really interesting country um, because it has a colonial history. The Dutch. Uh, um, ran or you know kind of were in charge of Indonesia for a lot of lot of time. Indonesia is not really one country either. It's a comprised of eighteen thousand islands, three hundred and nineteen different dialects, seven hundred and nineteen different tribes, all who come together under the banner of Indonesia. But there's a lot of just uh, division and separation, and and it's also the world's largest, single largest Muslim nation. So really interesting experience living and working there for three and a half years as a general manager and then uh along the whole time the whole journey i'm i'm adopting my leadership style right so i'm i'm, I'm putting into practice things that i believe because you know we're many of us are always told we can't be as good as our white counterparts we have to be better mm -hmm. and i kind of took that to heart as a leader I, I have to be a better leader i can't get away with the toxic nonsense that my white, you know, peers get away with. I'm not that person. I can't. So I have to find and carve a different path. And that that different path became rooted in actually positive psychology, strengths based leadership, um, uh, uh, team over individual talent, and ultimately evolved to servant leadership by the time I arrived in in Indonesia. And this is where it was really interesting because in, uh, servant leadership is all about reinverting the hierarchy. So you take an organization that's pointed at you, you're the boss, right? You flip it over on his head and then you're the people who will create value for the customer are the most important in the company. You are the, the chief server and supporter of the overall organization. You're holding everything up, mm -hmm. but you're not the most important thing in the person in the organization. And Indonesia is a very hierarchical culture. So they're all about top down. They're all about command and control. They're all about the buck stops with the boss. And so that was a real test of my principles as a leader because I, I, I had to really stick to my guns because the easiest thing for me to do would have been like, okay, well, this is your culture. I'm going to adapt your culture and just you know, do mm -hmm. it your way. But I was like, no, that's not the right thing for people. And I said, eventually they will see me as authentic because I'm going to be consistent. And eventually I won them over. It took some time. It was not easy. The first two years in that job were very very, very challenging. But um, by sticking to my guns, I, ultimately we created the kind of organization that I, I was very proud of by the time that I left. And then I moved back to Brazil uh, for the last two years from 18 to 2020, leading uh, a, a large country operation for Allergan in, uh, in Brazil. And, uh, and then Allergan was purchased by AbbVie uh, in June of 2019. 
And then the deal was closed in May of 2020. And I, I was like, it's my time. You know, I've done my 20 years. It's sort of like if you're in the military, you've done your kind of assignment. I've done my 20. Okay, now I'm, I'm, I'm retired from that corporate career and I'm going to start uh, my new career. So that's, that's a little bit about me, some stories and some of my journey. Thank you for that. I, I, I so appreciate it. It's, um, you know, from the time you entered, you know, college and, and trying to find your identity, as you said, everybody's looking for their identity and, you know, and you did the work you had to do and you got this privileged start coming out of academia and, um, took advantage of it. And I, you know, I heard curiosity, you know, you got, you, you got into these spaces, you, you took advantage of what was given you, you took responsibility for it. I heard the exploration, the curiosity, the wonder, the recognition that, Hey, wait a minute, there's much more to this world. It's, more, it's really complex, you know, um, and through all of it, really taking advantage of the experience on the ground of different ways of living, different ways of thinking, different ways of leading. And all the while holding on to your principles that you held as great leadership you know, through all of that. And it, it's, it's, yes, you're educated, you know, you, you, you've gone to university, you got a, a graduate degree, um, but you've actually lived it out and you've put it to the test. You put it to the test. And that, that's what I love most about your story and just sort of to maintain that identity, but also be curious and wonder and navigate and shift and recognize and honor cultures, but also know where your own boundaries are and who you are and how you lead. I really, I really appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it was a, it was a, it's been a tremendous journey um, with a million lessons, but I, you know, really one of my calling cards is I'm the guy who's tried it all out. So basically I'm not a theoretician, you know, uh, you know, any book you love in leadership and business, I've done it. I've actually put it to work on the ground, seen the flaws in it, seen the holes in it and, and patched them up. So, you know, follow me so you don't have to do the same, follow, have the same mistakes that I, that I had when I, when I was doing that. And the other one is, you know, the realization that as a black and brown person, we can't get away with the same stuff and trying to carve that new path. Because the other thing that's interesting about my experience was that when I began to live overseas from 23, when I was an intern with, in Brazil for the first time, and then in Turkey and Indonesia, this was the first time in my, these, these are the moments in my life where I was never, I was not a black Amer a black person first. Mm -hmm. I was an American first. And it's really a head trip to not be black anymore. And then I, I want you to hear me like in the, the right way. Like they don't relate to you as a black person. When I was in Brazil at 23, I was an American. They're asking me questions about America. What's it like to be an American? And when I'm in Turkey, what's it like to be an American? In Indonesia, what's it like? They're not asking me about my my racial identity and my racial experience. They're relating to me in a whole different way that I'd never been related to for the majority of my life. And so you, I was able to drop those kind of the, the bags of my racial identity down and kind of just experience the world like everyone else, like the white people do, actually. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, I, I love that you're saying that because... You know, I've said it on 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 this show uh, before, and I've shared it with a few people who've had opportunity to ask me about it. You know, coming from the Bahamas, even though it's very close to the United States, I did not embody. I knew there was something called black people, right. but that was not my identity. I didn't know I was black until I came to the United States, and I was told so. Right. I was a Bahamian. And the Caribbean, as close in proximity as the islands are to the United States, there is a different narrative in this country around people who are black. And, um, and that's been a real trip for me in my experience just in the United States, because my mindset and, you know, in those formative years, still, right. you know, I, I'm Bahamian first. It changes something about the way you think and the way you approach the world when you've had those experiences. I, you know, I noticed my brain changing a lot 
as it related to these questions. Mm -hmm. cool. Awesome. We could go on forever. So you all know that, you know, we're speaking to an author and, you know, Omar wrote the book, The Servant Leader's Manifesto. And um, he's doing some work now called Jedi Leadership. And that's what we're going to talk about a little bit today, uh, going from servant leader or servant leadership to Jedi leadership. And I'm, I'm, I'm probably as curious as you are listening to this. I want to know what they are, what the difference is, and how do you get it? it, it, it I assume Jedi leadership is something new and better and specific, or at least focused. So I want to understand what that is and what I can do with it. Perfect. So, so to go back to our definition of servant leadership, once again, this is in principle, the, re the, the, the reorientation of the organizational hierarchy back towards those who create value for the customer. And so it's putting the onus on leaders to uh, be problem solvers, uh, people who remove barriers for people to be people developers, um, to be to basically be pe people concerned. So I think that it's a, it's an important step. I call it like a detox between what I call the age of toxic leadership, which 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 we're, it is ending now, and then the age of Jedi leadership, which is starting soon. I don't think we've we're there yet, um, but we've you're, all experienced, you're going to get us there. Yeah, I'll get you, yeah exactly. So <laughs> we've all experienced the age of toxic leadership, the boss era, where basically we all work for and everyone has a boss they hate. Everyone, some people have a boss they like. Very few people have bosses who were great. Because to be a boss, and actually our, our mutual friend Liz Swigert told me this, that you know the word boss uh, was created by the Dutch people when it means master, and that it was purposefully utilized after slavery to, uh, to get people to call white people master again, even though slavery had ended. And I just... She blew my whole brain up when she when she told me that, uh, told me that factoid as I'm writing the book because she was reading the book for me and and I was like, oh my goodness gracious. So yeah, I've always hated the word boss, and now I hate it even more. Hate it even more. Should be outlawed <laughs> from our. You were talking about canceling thing. Let's cancel the word boss. Yeah, I've I've joked I've joked around with, with you know, um, you know, black people going to work and and you know some people might be alarmed by me saying this. I say, oh well, you know, you're just going from one slave master to the other. Jobs. <laughs> it's pretty much true. It's pretty much true. And, and, and so then, so basically servant leadership is, is where you detox, you get rid of all those toxic boss ideas and you, you drop those things. You reorient yourselves back towards people, but why does it matter? Are we, are we reorienting ourselves back towards people just to increase profits? And once again, uh, to make more money in the capitalist notion? Well, no. Actually, I see the corporation as like, and don't take this the wrong way, but like the new, the new clergy, you know, corporations are the space where regardless of our belief system, it's the only place now where people come together regardless of differences and get something done together. So you have, you know, MAGA people working with black and Latino people and whatever else. And they, and when they come into the company, their job is they, they all work at Amazon. So their job is to get packages to people. And there, there's all different types of people working for that corporation. So that corporation is a space where a higher purpose can be achieved. Our politicians used to do that, our civic leaders, but now it's the corporation. The corporation is the new, is the new place where these kind of broader purposes can be born. And with that in mind, we begin to get to Jedi leadership. So People have heard of DEI, DEI and B, all these acronym soup, alphabet soup acronyms. I like Jedi for one, because I love Star Wars and two, because it's, it's just easy to think about justice, equity, diversity and inclusion. So, so when you do the detox of servant leadership, reorient yourself, now you can begin thinking about what corporate leadership is really about. And it's really about creating positive outcomes for a broad base of stakeholders in society. So the employees first, customers, the community, the environment, and shareholders. Why are we limiting ourselves to a definition of a corporation that only is about shareholders? And 200, 
American CEOs in 2019 recognized the need to transform the definition of the corporation towards what I call stakeholder capitalism. So those five stakeholders I just mentioned. Mm-hmm. So Jedi leadership is not about turning a corporation into a mission-based firm in terms of, you know, we're going to be mission-based. It's about leveraging justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion as the how you go about achieving better outcomes for the community, for customers, for employees, for the environment, and ultimately for shareholders. So very simplistically, that's, that's the bridge. That's what, that's what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. What, and you know, I, I, it sounds like uh, you just made what most people call diversity and inclusion the business imperative is what it sounds like to me. Is that, is that what you're saying? That's what I'm, I'm saying that you will not be able to achieve these outcomes if you're not a Jedi leader. So basically Jedi without Jedi leadership, you can't get there. You can't get there. Okay. What's important about this to black and brown people in the United States in corporate America? So if you were looking for your niche or looking for your space or looking for that, that opportunity to do a land grab, I mean, if you think about how, because corporate world is a bit like a game. You're trying to navigate, you're trying to see who's doing what and whatever it is. It's a bit of a game, gamification aspect to it. You got to keep your ear to the ground, see what's going on to find your opportunities and find your opportunities to pull yourself up. Well, this is the opportunity. If we lean into this space and we become the first Jedi leaders, we are, this is our ticket to the C-suite. This is our ticket to running large fortune 500 companies because the linkages from a data perspective between jedi and outcomes are undeniable but however our peers who don't have the background that we have are going to have difficulty making that journey because their their rationale for what they're doing is really all about power and uh, about endless ambition and and the, the black and brown people that I know, it's, that's not why, what we're in it for. We have different motivators for, behind, for why we're doing it. Um, and, and that's one of the reasons why a lot of us get to a certain level and we, we check out because we're like, okay, we got what we wanted to get out of it and we're, we're, we're on to the, to the next thing. So, but I think that now's the time to stay in corporate, leverage the Jedi opportunity, the hottest Go to LinkedIn right now, the hottest job position right now in the world, especially in the corporate world, is D, E, and I, and B leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I have a bit of a disagreement with that, and we can talk about that a little bit in, in a second, but it, what I mean is it's creating opportunity. And, and with the opportunity comes a space to make something different happen. Um, even if today corporations are going about it the wrong way, it still creates an opportunity for us to occupy a space that is uniquely where we can uniquely add uh, value to corporations and begin to prove the link. Because the key thing is we have to prove the link between the Jedi aspect and the financial outcomes that corporations run on. And the more we can make those linkages tight and the more we're the ones who understand how to make it happen. That's what I mean. That that's your ticket to the C-suite. That's how we ride up the elevator and get to the top of the house. Oh, he said a couple of things. One, we have something to make it happen. So I, I want to hold that for a second because I'm, I'm curious what that thing is and, and who is we. And um, this notion of occupying space in, in this time, you know, and I've seen this on LinkedIn and I just have to say what I have to say. I've seen so many new white DNI experts come out of nowhere. And I don't know where they came from. And they're getting jobs and occupying space. Yeah. So what I want to understand from your point of view, at least currently, because I think we're all trying to figure this out, is what do corporations really need, mm-hmm. you know, from a Jedi leadership perspective in order to accomplish what it is they want, they need to accomplish. What is it that they need? One, who, who can bring that? Right. Right. And are they taking right steps in your mind right now to get there? 
Right, right. So it's hard to understand the need for justice if you've never been violated from a justice perspective. It's hard to have the passion to really create an equitable environment if, you, if you've never been on the, the downside of equity. It's hard to leverage diversity if you, if you, if you live in a, a homogenous environment and everyone around you is the same and thinks the same and does the same type of stuff. And it's hard to understand the need to amplify voices if your voice has always been heard. So when I say we and who we are, it's, you know, not that the meek shall inherit the earth, but because of our experience, and when I see us and we, I'm talking about black and brown people in the African diaspora, BIPOC, we, we, we understand the need for these things. We can articulate these things through an experiential perspective. Um, you know, if you hired a DEI expert, so-called expert last year during, you know, the George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery situations, and you're asking a white person to explain to you why the company should lean into the justice space. Um, it's going to become, it's going to be whitewashed. I mean, the, 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 that person does not, you might intellectually understand it, but you don't emotionally understand it. You haven't actually experienced it. And so how can you actually activate without having the experience? Your influence and your trustworthiness and credibility goes up because you have a basis of understanding in order to, to convince and to influence and to convey what it's like to not be seen, what it's like to, to really go through life and see the world through this messed up lens that so many of us see the world through this, this we're always expecting the other shoe to drop. Mm -hmm. and, and it's hard for people on the other side to understand that, what it's like to feel that, you know? And so that's why I think this is uniquely a space that we should own because we, we have the, the passion and this is an opportunity for us to really change, change the game for, you know, once again, we're talking about community, we're talking about employees, we're talking about customers. So it's time to make companies begin to reflect the community, reflect the customer, reflect their employees. Uh, uh, amplify voices, uh, support the causes that are important to those groups of people, uh, start doing right by the environment. Because um, the government, you know, politi politics are going to be mired in politics, but corporations can make big differences against the environment, environmental justice and justices as well. Mm -hmm. So this is why- And still this, make money. And still and make still money. make plenty of money. But how to make money when this whole thing switches and, and CEOs begin being measured by Jedi measurements, a lot of CEOs are going to get fired. Mm -hmm. That's why we have to be in the space. We have to be ready. Yeah. So, so you got, you got one and two, there's, there's one more. And that is from your point of view, are companies making right choices right now, but or is there still a need for a big shift for, for this Jedi leadership to really take foot, take hold? Well, what happens is, you know, corporate, you know, America or Fortune 500, they trend chase. You know, Deloitte or McKinsey or PwC puts out a puts out a a, a think a think paper. This is the trend of the moment. CEOs talk about it amongst themselves and they jump on this bandwagon. The same thing happened with digital transformation in 2010s. Same thing happened with the sustainability movement uh, in the late 90s, moving into now, and things become popular and faddish, and we jump on them, right? And you know. CEOs seem to think that the fastest way to solve a problem is just to throw money at it, put a person there, give them a title, and you know then they'll go go fix it. But that's, you know, Jedi is more systemic than that. Jedi is is not a trend to be capitalized on. Jedi is a reckoning for how corporations should have been operating for years. We're so late and so unevolved when it comes to these issues we didn't just get to us we didn't just get to this space mm -hmm. where this, these things matter these things have mattered we could have done jedi back in 95 after the oj trial we could have done jedi at any moment mm -hmm. in 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 so many moments throughout history where, where 
Even yeah, before OJ. Rodney King, before OJ. I mean, there was plenty of moments. I mean, mm. the crack epidemic in the 80s, we could have been doing Jedi. I mean, uh, the moment that before, instead of affirmative action, do Jedi. So this is this is an idea. This is a moment that's been long time in the in the making. You don't solve these problems by putting a, a pointing ahead and saying, okay, now that I've pointed ahead, I've given this person some resources, uh, and now I can forget about it and get back to managing my institutional shareholders and activist shareholders and hedge fund guys who are messing with my stock price. Mm -hmm. No. This is fundamentally a lead, the leadership challenge of our time to, re, to deconstruct and reconstruct the basis for a corporation. Yeah. To eliminate anti to eliminate racist sexist any any unequal policy gender uh ageist uh um able body versus disabled body, to, to dismantle all of these systems that have led to all of this inequity over all this time mm -hmm. that is what we're talking about and it's not something that's going to be done by a dei officer it's going to take every leader every manager hr everybody working in a concerted effort and going through a significant amount of pain organizationally to deconstruct and reconstruct yeah so you you started to answer the question that was bubbling up in me which is around justice that's the first letter how do companies serve justice internally yeah because what I'm seeing with most companies is an external facing message right. about what they're going to do out there, who they're going to recruit, who they're going to retain, but not really a message that says, we're going to look internally and we're coming in with the gavel because there is injustice in our systems. Right. There are injustices in our structures, you know, so how do companies get there, especially, you know, companies will say, Hey, you know, if we say we have a racism problem, now they might be in legal jeopardy. So how right. do they, how do they do this? It is tricky. It's tricky because anything, you know, it becomes discoverable, uh, things can be used against you in a court of law. So it is, it is, a, it is a, you know, from a legal jeopardy perspective, I understand admitting certain things puts them uh, could put them on the, the, the wrong side of where they don't want to be. But if you, you, you can't look at each of these words, these letters and words in isolation, you combine them together to get the outcome you want. So justice, if you want to improve justice, you need to have diversity of thought and you need to include those voices. The first thing that I would do if I were a CEO of any corporation would be, I would go to my disenfranchised populations, and we know who those are, females, minorities, you know, different ethnicities, able, disabled. Uh, I would go to these, these fringe groups of my organization and I would ask them about the injustices that are happening in our own company. Mm -hmm. I would create a forum to discuss the injustices and the, and the inequities. And they would tell me within, if I did a poll, a straw poll of these things, within 15 minutes, I would probably have 75 items and areas to work on. Mm -hmm. So just start with that. Just, you know, go to the people. The people will tell you. Once again, this reorientation, servant leadership. What are the challenges? What are your challenges? What's preventing you from being your best every day? What's preventing you from, from being your most productive and most engaged? Well, these practices, these policies, these things. What's preventing you that is unjust. Exactly. So that's unjust. So companies are not asking themselves the right questions. No. They're not starting from the right point. The assumption is wrong that we don't have the information inside of ourselves. That's the first assumption. And this happens every time you have one of these trends where companies assume the answer is on the outside, not on the, and they don't mind the inside. There's plenty of stuff. These are large companies, hundreds of thousands of employees. How are they, you know, people are interested in all types of subjects. You have no idea what you have in your own human capital basis point until you ask and try to activate it. So you start with what you've got, not every try day. to go outside you know we value once again it's showing that we don't value fundamentally we're saying we don't value any of the voices inside of our company we need someone from the outside to tell us what we're doing wrong mm -hmm. 
So I think that's that's fundamentally a, a, a wrong uh, a wrong assumption. You know, I had a conversation with a colleague um, who's having you know having a rough time. You know, some frustration. Uh, you know, a black colleague, and um, one of the things we talked about, and I mentioned was, you know, these companies promote a lot of stuff, promote diversity, promote equity, promote belonging, promote inclusion. And all of those things are good. But what's, what's killing this person, and I see it because I experience it, mm-hmm. is when black and brown people go to work and they observe and they see what's being permitted, what the company's permitting white people to do and get away with. That you said it earlier in the show that, you know, black and brown people can't do that and get away with it. So that's an injustice. Yes. It's like you may not even experience a microaggression, but you're sitting in the pool looking at all of these injustices around you because the organization is permitting bad behavior, no accountability. One hidden injustice we don't talk about is the cronyism that exists in corporate America and this, this, this old boys club and, you know, the whole sourcing, the hidden bias of pedigree. So if you're not from this community, didn't go to these schools, didn't do like, you're not, no matter who you are, you're not going to make it. And we know disproportionately that we don't come from those places and go to those schools. And so there's already an injustice in uh, an inherent injustice in the bias for senior leadership, because, you know, no matter what HR says in their policy book, the hiring manager is like, okay, you know, you better have like three or four people from Harvard on this list, right? You know, you better, I mean, I don't care if they're men or women, but give me, you know, they need to have that background. So it's already a limiting factor. Uh, and you're already not casting as wide a net as possible when it comes to recruiting people for these senior roles, because people really, senior leaders really believe that their experience, what made them who they are, is the only way to be successful in a world that is which is so far away from where it was when they started and will be so far away from where they are now by the time in the next 20 years that they're looking at the wrong things and asking all the wrong questions and that's the reason why eight and nine percent of the fortune 500 ceos are still white men mm-hmm. well, let me ask you this most organizations I'll, I'll say good and good in a relative sense doing some work they do a lot better with recruiting, but they, they're still terrible with retention. And I have a point of view, and I want your reaction to this, is that people leave because they sit around and they can see those injustices of just permitting sort of this, you know, the, the cronyism. And even if you're not getting directly harmed, you could look at that and say, well, this place isn't for me. I'm only going to be able to go so far. So I'm going to quit at X point and you right. start seeing people leave. That's sort of, you know, that to me, that is the damage of what you permit does to all of the DEI efforts. You can spend all this money, recruit all these people, but the injustice that's happening on the inside, just because of the ocean that you swim in, you're mm-hmm. never going to keep the diversity that you spent money recruiting. Yeah. So I, I, once again, and, and, and I really think Ibram X. Kendi has, uh, you know, this whole, you know, how to be an anti-racist and in that it's not racist to flip the scales in the other way to undo an injustice. So I would apply that thinking to, to your question, which is they're going to need to do some things that are very uncomfortable from a hiring and promoting standpoint that are maybe not going to make sense from the way that things have been done in the past to right the wrongs that have already been done. I was saying this on an earlier podcast today that, but like until 51% of the CEOs on Fortune 500 and at least American-based companies are female, black or any other race, we're not representing society. And so you're going to need to fire a bunch of white dudes and hire a bunch of, a lot of female CEOs. Mm-hmm. 
on purpose and purpose. make no bones about it, on pur- purposefully saying we are for the next three cycles we are not hiring no white man will have a chance to be ceo of this corporation and putting it out there declaring it mm-hmm. be clear about it be clear about it and and that is not racism that's anti-racism because you are writing the scales you are basically flipping the script back into the other other way you could do the same thing with any other uh, under underrepresented group you could say listen we're literally going to only hire black and brown people for the next three years yeah you don't correct inequity with equality no it's not you equality. corrected you you yeah. you corrected with inequity exactly <laughs> it takes an inequity to write an inequity yeah yeah and so yeah people are going to bitch and they're going to complain and they're going to be mad because uh, they're going to experience what we've experienced our entire since we've since we've had relative freedom, right? Mm-hmm. It's time for time for that to. But but out of, that's what I'm saying. Like, this is why DEI work is really hard because they're not ready to do that. And so until they're ready to do that, because that's really what. If you're a DEI officer listening to this call, go to your CEO and tell them that's what they need to be doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, companies aren't doing this. So for black and brown folks who are out there right. that want to start leading in this way, Jedi, yeah. from the seat yeah. that they're in, what are a couple things that they can begin to do or reflect on so they can move in this direction and take advantage of this opportunity? So I think the first thing is to gain credibility because behind credibility, you gain trust as the internal expert. So so basically get up to speed on on these topics. I think that Begin to you know, reading my book will be one way, but also reading. There's a lot of literature out there right now about about the statistics and the connections between Jedi principles and performance and outcomes for organizations. And have those have those sound bites and those statistics. We should own those sound bites and those statistics and that data. That data. And and if we don't have it, we should be trying to create studies and opportunities within our organizations to create the data that will prove out these concepts. Because with credibility comes trust, and with trust comes influence, and we need influence to do this. Now, the other thing I would say is adopt servant leadership principles, because that's another way where you, you, you build an army of supporters and advocates and followers when you are a servant leader versus being a boss and trying to do it the way that it's been done in the past. So I think that that's the other thing that I would state is lean into servant leadership principles, and it will, it will once again help you. All this is to gain credibility to gain followership, gain trust, and ultimately gain influence so that when we need to make certain moves, we can make those make those moves. And so that would be the approach that I would recommend. Uh, and it starts with informing ourselves and arming ourselves with data and information. Uh, we have to have the facts at our at our fingertips. We have to be we have to be able to simplify relatively complex topics like justice, like equity, like diversity and inclusion. We have to be able to simplify those things for people who this is as foreign as speaking Mandarin. We have to be able to translate Mandarin to English mm-hmm. uh, so that people can begin to understand. What we, and, we have to, and we have to be resilient and willing to, ready to just repeat ourselves a million times. Don't get frustrated if people don't get it the first time you said it. Yeah. Just keep yeah. Saying, saying it over and over and again until, until you have people start listening and leaning in and, and begin more ready to, to act. Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to add to that, and you know, the resilience is key, taking care of yourself along the way, because it's, it's going to take some work, it's going to take some work to do it. Hey, so your book is The Servant Leaders Manifesto by yes, Omar L. Harris. Um, and you're, you're recommending that, that folks get a hold of that as a, a starting point, along with Definitely. familiarizing themselves with the data. Where can people get information on, on Jedi? So I've published a few articles. All the articles I'm going to be writing moving forward are going to be on that. So if you can follow me on LinkedIn, you'll begin to see see those publications coming out. The book, Be a Jedi Leader, Not a Boss, is coming in May of 2021. So um, that will be a space. And if you follow, go to my website, www.omarlharris.com. You'll get all the updates around when things, new articles come out or when, uh, when pre-orders go on, on live for, for, for the book. I would also recommend if you're not following the B Lab, uh, if you're not following the Jedi Collaborative online, if you're if you're looking to follow Just Capital online, so there's some resources where some some organizations doing good work in the space. 
Um, so I'll recommend those those three for sure as resources that have a lot of information and data and statistics and facts that you can utilize and you can familiarize yourself with the work that's already been done in the space. There's a lot of work that's been done in the space. So I think that it's 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 a, a incumbent upon us to go get the information, get the data, uh, and then massage it for our purposes. Yeah. Do you have your LinkedIn address memorized that you can say on air? It's Omar L. Harris. So LinkedIn backslash in backslash Omar L. Harris. All right. Thank you. Appreciate you being on the show. I'm sure this is a treat for our listeners. And uh, I'm going to make sure myself that I start following, digging into some of these resources. Really appreciate your time today, Omar. Thank you, Neil. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Omar laid it out. Jedi Leadership, an approach to corporate diversity and inclusion that leads with a justice lens, focused on internal efforts and requiring people to have lived experience with the types of injustices black and brown people have faced in the workplace for a long, long time. The opportunity is both for business leaders who need to make courageous decisions to stop doing what they've been doing and failing at, and then taking new action, and also for black and brown folks, black and brown folks who want to be leaders to prepare themselves for the opportunity by getting smart on data and information and being able to define justice, equity and inclusion in simple terms for people so that they better understand and adopting servant leadership principles to build credibility and influence. I love this episode and what Omar is saying. There's an opportunity for black and brown people who want to lead and an opportunity for companies that truly want to stop losing on, on the DNI front and start winning. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Leadership Range. If you enjoyed the episode, I invite you to peruse the others for more great conversations. If you know someone you think ought to be on the podcast, please send me an email at neil at neiledwardscoaching.com. To connect with me, you can find me on LinkedIn at linkedin.com slash in slash n edwards 07 i look forward to you joining in for more conversations each monday on the leadership range